I'd now like to turn it over uh, without any further ado to our partner in all of this, Margaret Ann Ballmeyer, the president of the MCV Foundation. I welcome her to the podium and also offer again my thanks for being here and for your support and uh, for taking part in this, this great uh, lecture this evening. Thank you so much. Hello, I am Margaret Ann Bollmeyer, president of MCV Foundation, and I just want to say thank you to Jamie and his team. This has been a wonderful partnership planning this event and this uh, series of events that we're going to be doing together. We're so happy to see all of you here. I do want to start by thanking our sponsor who has made this evening possible, the Virginia Sargent Reynolds Foundation. So thank you so much for the support that's underwriting the cost of this event tonight. Um, so we greatly appreciate that. Um, I also want to um, echo the comments that uh, Jamie made to say thank you to Austin Brockenbro. So Austin and I talked with Pam C, who's also here tonight, um, several months ago. And we talked about this book that Austin had just read, Every Second Counts. And we talked about the fact that the 50th anniversary of the first human heart transplant was coming up um, at the end of, of, of last year in December. And Austin had the idea of bringing our groups together to talk about this book and this really important moment in history and what it meant for us today. Like, what, what, does, what has that history led to? So um, we're here tonight. We, we did have this event scheduled for last June. I want to thank those of you who were planning to come in June with the author, Donald McRae. And unfortunately, he had to cancel um, just shortly before that event. We were not able to get him here this spring. Um, he has some issues that he had to deal with and wasn't able to attend. But we decided we're going to move forward because we can talk about the 50th anniversary of the first human heart transplant. We can talk about the book. And we can still have this, this wonderful evening, even if Donald McRae isn't here. And I promise you we're going to have that tonight. So I want to recognize a few people who are here um, who have been really important in this whole history. Um, Dr. Walter Lawrence is here. Where, will you wave? Where are you, Dr. Lawrence? He's in the back. Uh, Dr. Lawrence is a professor of surgery emeritus and also director emeritus of the VCU Massey Cancer Center. Um, also want to recognize Dr. Michael Hess. Dr. Hess, I know that you're here as well. Right here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Hess is the former director of MCV's cardiac transplant program. I also want to recognize some people who were there when, when this happened. Um, down in the front, Becky Perdue, who's a member of the MCV Foundation Board, but was director of the clinical lab for the Humley Transplant Center, and Kay Martin, who was a director of transplant nursing. Kay, wait, wave your hand. Thank you. We also have with us Nancy Lee Lighty. Nancy, who was here, who also worked in the lab at the time. And I want to ask anyone else who was working at MCV during this time when this human heart transplant happened, um, the first one at MCV and during the research, will you wave your hand to us? Because I know we have some other people here. Thank you all. Wow. I saw about 10 hands. Thank you all for being here. And we, I hope that as we get to hear the panel and have the Q&A that you'll be able to offer some interesting remarks to us as well. I want to say uh, we have a number of MCV Foundation trustees who are here. I want to thank you. And I want to thank the staff who planned this event, 
uh, starting with Pam C. and Brian Thomas from the MCB Foundation and Andy Talkoff. Thank you all very much for making this event happen. And now um, I want to in in introduce one very special person who's here with us tonight. So when I read this book, which I'm going to tell you, this book is a page turner. It is a very exciting book. And when I read it, part of what I learned about was not only the race for the first heart transplant and the four surgeons who all were working and hoping to be the first to transplant the human heart, but what, re what really struck me, because I am at, at MCV, was that Dr. Dick Lauer, who was at MCV Foundation, was credited by all of these physicians for doing so much of the research that led up to the point where we were able to do the heart transplant. And I really enjoyed reading about that and learning about him. And his wife, Ann Lauer, is here with us tonight. Ann, will you raise your hand? Thank you for joining us. Um, now I want to introduce someone who is very well known to many of us in the room. And that is Dr. Charlie Bryan, the former president and CEO of the Virginia Historical Society and also a board member of MCV Foundation. Charlie? My brain and my feet don't work together. <laughs> I'm not a real doctor. I pretend like I'm a doctor. I was introduced as a doctor. But I'm delighted to be here tonight. There's one other person I would like for us to recognize, and that's Dr. Hunter Holm McGuire, who is head of the VA uh, for a number of years. and was there when they did the first transplant, the first in the VA system in the nation to do a heart transplant. But I want to talk tonight in a few minutes I have about what is the most important development of the last millennium. Now, when we came close to 2000, there were all kinds of pundits who wanted to examine what was the most important development of the last millennium. You can think of all kinds of things, the invention of the printing press, the uh, harnessing of steam power, atomic energy, space travel. But there's one I think that stands out as more important than any, that would have profound consequences not only on the future, on, on today, but the future as well. And that's the virtual doubling of the lifespan of the human being. That only occurred in the last two centuries of the um, last millennium. If you go back to the year 1000 AD, uh, the average lifespan of a person was only about 25 years of age. Of course, that takes into account a high mortality rate for infants. You come up to the year 1800, that lifespan had expanded, uh, had extended to about 31 or 32 years. But you come up to 1900, that lifespan had virtually had nearly doubled. It was 48. Come up to 2001. It had expanded to 30, it extended to 76 years of age. Now that's phenomenal. And it, was it an accident? No, it wasn't. Something caused this, and what it was, was the, was the great advances in medical science. Uh, there are three things that, that contributed to this. One, the medical profession became a true profession in the 19th century. You had the creation of the American Medical Association, 
Uh, you had the creation of medical schools throughout the nation, including MCD in the late 1830s. You had um, uh, licensings and, uh, the, for doctors. A doctor couldn't just study a, a book and go out and put his shingle up and say, I'm a doctor. It, it became a true profession, and that made a huge difference. The second thing was, and this began particularly in the 20th century, was the creation of a public health system that we sometimes take for granted. But hospitals and clinics were created and built throughout the country, staffed by qualified doctors and nurses. And it's interesting that the average, uh, the average age went up because the infant mortality rate went down. More people were born in hospitals and clinics than they were at home. But the third thing, and this is relevant to our, our subject tonight, was the tremendous number of increases in, in advances in medical science, including uh, heart uh, transplants, as we'll learn, um, the um, uh, uh, different types of surgery. I, I was, uh, I'm a product of deep brain stimulation surgery at uh, the VA hospital in, in cooperation with the VCU. But uh, it is uh, amazing that the human lifespan has virtually doubled. Now, that's going to have profound consequences on our present and our future. For example, I heard on NPR this morning, by the year 2035, there will be more uh, people over the age of 65 than there are people under the age of 18. And the consequences of that are, are profound. But um, tonight, we're here to learn about a race a race to perform the first human transplant. And this discussion will revolve around um, Donald McRae's remarkable book, book um, Every Second Counts. One thing I learned from that book that I did not realize was that Christian Barnard, who is credited with having pronounced, uh, pronounced as the first uh, heart transplant, actually studied here at MCD for three months. And uh, I, I don't think that's part of the story that many people know. But as you will learn, the four surgeons who performed this uh, path-breaking surgery were absolutely remarkable. And I look forward to hearing tonight's discussion. And I am honored to be a representative of not only the Virginia Historical Society, but the MCV Foundation. It's been one of the most rewarding boards I've ever served on. And I must say that when you think about it, what the foundation does for Richmond is incredible. And we are so very lucky to have the MCV Foundation and MCV as part of our community in Richmond. It helps provide a richer community in so many ways. So thank you very much, and live long and prosper. <laughs> I'm Mel Williams, and I got interested in transplantation surgery in 1963, just as I was uh, completing my residency. So I wrote a letter to Dr. Hume and said I was really interested in this as a career, and didn't hear, didn't hear, and all of a sudden I got a telephone call from Dr. Hume uh, saying he wanted me down in Richmond in two days. Uh, he put me quickly in charge of the surgical research lab, uh, worked closely with Jim Wolfe and Myron Kaufman at the time. It was really quite a team. H.M., uh, of course, had stayed on, and he was the main uh, engine in the surgical care of these patients. Uh, and I learned a tremendous amount from H.M. My best friend, other than H.M., was Dick Lauer. And Dick had been recruited from Dr. Shumway's laboratory in Stanford and had established a very real uh, investigative program in heart transplantation in dogs. 
Uh, Dick, as a fellow, had invented the, had discovered the technique that was used throughout the world when heart transplants were done in humans. Um, and so he had dogs that were a year uh, on imuran and prednisone with a donor heart. The first time I really was brought upright by his work was his plea uh, to take out a heart after we had taken out both kidneys and the heart had stopped, of course, before we took out the kidneys, uh, to see if he could resuscitate a human heart. Uh, well, we all thought, well, you know, that's hopeless because we wouldn't be operating on this patient. Uh, he's not dead if he can start the heart again. Uh, this is kind of stupid. Um, but lo and behold, uh, there, was the t there was the occasion uh, where after about 40 minutes of um, uh, not breathing, the heart stopped. Uh, I took out the kidneys, but probably took about a half an hour, after which Dick took out the heart, dumped it in some salt water, cold with ice, took it over to the lab and started it up. Here was his heart uh, in a Langendorf prep, which is the heart being the pump. There was a little oxygenator, a little Krebs solution or something like that as the perfusate. Uh, and here was his heart uh, uh, illuminated with a gooseneck lamp, just whacking away there on the bench in the lab. And I thought, oh my goodness gracious, this is really something. To see a human heart out of the body working like this. Well, now we're going to hear more of the story. I'm going to introduce, introduce the moderator of our panel, Dr. Peter Buckley. Dr. Buckley is the Dean of Medicine and Executive Vice President for Medical Affairs at um, VCU Health, Dean of Medicine at the VCU School of Medicine. He came here in January uh, of 2017 from the Medical College of Georgia, where he also served as Dean of Medicine. He and his wife, Leone, are originally from Dublin, Ireland. I'm very happy that Leone's here tonight as well. Thank you for joining us. And he is a psychiatrist with a specialty in schizophrenia. He will be moderating our panel and introducing the members of it. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Good evening, everybody. Imagine convincing a panel of four distinguished surgeons to sit on the couch with a psychiatrist in front of 200 people. Isn't that remarkable? We're, you're, you're in for a real treat uh, this evening. Uh, I don't want to belabor remarks. Uh, uh, there are many people who have contributed to this history. And what you will hear us, we will walk through the history but we also want to take you both to today and into the future because, of course, you build on the, on, on the, uh, on the shoulders of giants. And Dr. Lauer, in 1968, con uh, conducted the first open-heart transplant and also the, 60, the first here, but the 16th in the world. Clearly a remarkable individual. We're privileged to have his wife here this evening. I'm going to just ask to run a little clip before we uh, invite up our panel. Hume's team included Richard Lauer, whose experiments with heart transplantation in dogs turned the tide of understanding how a human heart transplant was possible. We also got interested in what if 
we didn't take the beating heart out? What if we took the heart after they had taken the kidneys out? Whether we could resuscitate the heart and it would function normally. And so in a few instances, we got permission from the family of the donor of the kidneys to also take out the heart. We had a glass tumbler that the heart could be suspended in and perfused and warmed with type-specific blood. And it would start beating. And it would beat so loud that you could hear it out in the hall. We thought, you know, it might, this might work. <laughs> it did work. Lauer's work informed and inspired the world's first ever heart transplant. MCV performed the 16th heart transplant in history. Very cool. Let me int introduce our panel. If you'd come up and then I'll introduce you in, uh, one by one. Thank you. Please take a seat and then we'll do introductions and then we'll ask you some incredibly hard questions. <laughs> All right. So <clears throat> to my immediate left is Vig uh, Kasarajan and uh, Vig holds the Stuart Maguire Endowed Chair and is also Chair and Head of the, our Department of Surgery. Miking up right here in time is Marvin Levy Marvin is the holder of the David Hume Endowed Chair in uh, Transplantation. He's head of the Transplantation Services, and he's also director of the uh, Hume uh, Transplant Services. Marvin. Uh, to my left is Keir Shah, and Keir is the Section Chief of Heart Failure. He's the Medical Director of Mechanical Circulatory Services and he's Associate Professor of Surgery. Thank you. Here. And then last but not least is Dr. Daniel Tang. He is the holder of the Richard Lauer Endowed Chair in Cardiovascular Surgery. He's Associate Professor of Surgery and the Surgical Director of our Cardiac Transplantation and Mechanical Support. You should be clapping for these individuals. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, so now we're going to take you through a program, and we will have questions at the end. So if you have any questions, save them up towards the end. We'll have an opportunity for that. But we're going to walk you through both history right up to the present and also uh, get these experts their opinion as to what's in our future. So Vig, the, um, the book, of course, was fascinating and uh, also very exciting. But as a uh, cardiac surgeon, you know the backstory. And so, what were some of the challenges at that time around the first, first heart transplant here? So, I think the, one of the biggest challenges was the definition of death. Because at that time, death meant the heart had to stop. Around the time the first heart transplant was being um, worked on, primarily at Stanford, Brain death was being defined in Massachusetts. But brain death was not the law. <clears throat> so after the 
transplant, now the transplant done in South Africa was done from a donor whose heart had stopped. Mm -hmm. so, and then the heart was taken. Now in Virginia, when the first heart transplant was performed, the donor had suffered brain death according to the mass and then the heart was then taken along with the liver and the kidneys. But because there was no legal definition of brain death, one of the biggest challenges at that time was that Dr. Lauer was sued not for malpractice but for manslaughter. <laughs> so I remember the story that um, Jack Russell, who was the attorney who defended Dr. Lauer, told me. So there was a big transplant meeting at the John Marshall Hotel around that time, and he said how Dr. Hume was all excited about it. Hume just loved the publicity. So I said, this is the greatest thing that ever happened. This is the greatest thing that ever happened. I mean, and Dick Lauer was very concerned. He said, you know, I'm going to go to jail. So I said, no, 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 it's not going to happen. So, and of course, you know, that, that actually defined the legal definition of uh, brain death. And that paved the way to the future of heart transplantation. So today, worldwide, over 5,000 human heart transplants are performed. Not enough, but still a massive number compared to what happened at that day. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing contribution beyond just the cardiac contribution, contribution to medical ethics as well. Right. Uh, tell me, um, we've gone from one heart transplant in 68 to, tell me today, what, what are things today? What are the figures and then what's, what's our performance today? So, so at the health system we do about, uh, we still continue to do transplants both at the university and at the VA. Mm -hmm. We're actually the only VA doing transplants still in-house in a VA hospital. So combined we do about 40 transplants a year, which puts us at one of the, probably the top 50 programs in the country. But in addition to just doing transplants, it's a very comprehensive program that includes our colleagues in cardiology, a wide array of services that make us quite unique in Virginia and beyond. In fact, patients are referred to us for unusual problems. For example, Dr. Shah heads the a program where the uh, heart is affected by an abnormal protein produced by the liver called amyloidosis, which requires a heart-liver transplant. Uh, and then the liver is actually transplanted. That liver is then taken and given to another patient, and Dr. Levy's team transplants. So, it's a remarkable, uh, it's called a domino transplant. So uh, these things have become commonplace for us, uh, but still fairly unique even for many institutions in the country. How long would you be in hospital today if you have a heart transplant? I think our average length of stay is about 21 days now, and it could be shorter. It depends on, most of it relates to patients actually learning the medications, being comfortable with it, and we're very careful about that. Most patients are after a transplant, uh, many patients are out of bed in the next two to three days. Extraordinary. And, and back at the beginning of transplantation, what, what, how long would someone have been in bed for and then perhaps how long in hospital? Do you have any sense of that? Right, so in the original days when the transplants were first performed in the 1960s, remember we did not have the same drugs we have for immunosuppression. Yeah. So they, many of these patients got very, very high doses of steroids and that led to significant infectious complications and many of them had very prolonged stays in the hospital. I think we have come a long way. Now, currently, um, in about six months, many of our transplant patients are free of steroids. Yeah. So I think that's a, quite a, that alone 
and the reduction of the infections have made a remarkable uh, change. So l let me just ask Kehar, in, in terms of, um, you know, Vig mentioned that the technical surgery may have gone well, mm -hmm. but the immunosuppression was a major issue. And that is the body, when you introduce something to it that's not its, it rejects it. And then you have to fight a new heart, essentially. And uh, people, uh, drugs that reduce the immune system also leave them open for infection. So you have a knock-on effect. Tell us how the field has managed that since the beginning of heart surgery. Yeah, this was uh, a grave concern for both doctors Lauer and Shumway. Uh, when they were performing much of their early research in Stanford and then here in Richmond, uh, they, they preached to the medical world that, that we're not ready for transplantation because we also have to be prepared to handle rejection. Um, so as, as one of the speakers in the video mentioned early that uh, um, the early immunosuppressive regimen was basically lots of steroids and Imuran and then a lot more steroids if you thought something went wrong. When um, since then, there has been great leaps in terms of how we treat rejection. Uh, there's been a lot of research done with fungi. Fungus has a resilient way of surviving in places you don't want it to. Um, they, they've found proteins and, and uh, molecules in fungi which they've emulated drugs off of to help um, transplant patients suppress their immune system, just like fungi are able to uh, suppress immune systems. So we have drugs like um, uh, calcineurin inhibitors, such as tacrolimus and cyclosporin, and even, even uh, imuran has been replaced by something called mycophenolate, and, and some, some folks in the room may be familiar with these medications. They're used for more indications than heart transplantation. So that really took place over, over the subsequent decades after the first heart transplant, and it's affected all solid organ transplantation fields. Something um, related to the slide that's showing here is, is uh, early in, in the research and when they were appreciating rejection was um, a, a, a critical issue, was sorting out how to diagnose it and how to provide surveillance for when it should occur. And, I found this manuscript actually a few years ago. I was asked to write a book chapter on, on rejection and surveillance for rejection. And you really had to go back to some of the early papers. And this is something that Dr. Lauer published in circulation. And you know you're on the bleeding edge of research when a manuscript you publish in the leading cardiovascular journal in the world has one reference. So the, the one reference in this paper is how to do an EKG on a dog. <laughs> and, and what he discovered at this time, you know, decades ago, is a way to detect rejection in a transplanted heart was to just look at the EKG. And when the voltage, as you can see from top to bottom, starts decreasing, which is the size of the amplitude of the signal, and I know everyone's had EKGs, I've had EKGs. That was the best way they had back then to detect that the heart was actually rejecting. And so, um, as you can imagine, not the most sensitive tool, and probably diagnosed things 
a little bit later than we'd like to to effectively to treat someone with rejection. And then when we did, and just like Vig pointed out, they would get injections and infusions of steroids, and by that time you were dealing with it. Rejection mm -hmm. and then complications of infection. Things changed in subsequent years. Um, one of the biggest discoveries after, as we move forward, was uh, um, a physician in, in the UK, Philip Caves, moved to Stanford and, and worked with Dr. Shumway uh, to develop what we call now as a bioptome. And so now, and this has evolved over years, as you can <clears throat> see here on this diagram, we can go into the heart, which is a straight shot from your jugular vein here, right down into the ventricle and take small pieces. And what we've discovered since then is this is a much more sensitive way to discover rejection even before the patient gets symptomatic. Just like a skin biopsy for the heart or something, is that right? Yeah, even easier, yeah. And so um, we take a few pieces, and this, this is something we still do today, especially early after transplant. And um, what, we, what we have, rather than, than looking at the EKG lead, is, is we actually look at tissue. We look for inflammation. On the right, all those purple cells are uh, somebody who's having an episode of rejection, and we use special staining to look for antibodies. That's the fluorescent stuff you see on the left. And we've come from going away from having a single EKG lead on the, on the chest and waiting for the patient to be, have you know, a full-blown episode of rejection to detecting this well before it becomes significant and, and treating it well before the patient's compromised. Um, today, things have moved even further forward. We've gone away from biopsying people after six or eight months after transplant and they can get laboratory tests. In fact, we're involved with an NHLBI study where we're looking at patients' peripheral blood to see if there's particles of the transplanted heart, the donor's DNA circulating as a sign of injury to that heart. So the heart gets injured by rejection and the donor's um, DNA and, and cell particles are now circulating in your blood. And that's probably gonna help replace biopsy. So 50 years from now, when we're talking about the 100-year anniversary of heart transplant, they'll be laughing at us. <laughs> so, I think what this has done, and um, this, is, this is, I think, pretty amazing. The purple, and this is a, we talk about these in medicine all the time, but I'll, I'll walk, walk people through this. It's a very simple to understand. It's called the survival curve. And if your curve is diving down, it's bad. And so the, the purple line is survival for the heart transplant patient before the discovery of the first um, calcineurin inhibitors, or the drug called cyclosporin. So the average, the, the, the one-year survival was about 40%. So if you got a heart transplant and you were getting imuran or prednisone, you had a 40% survival of living one year. With the introduction of better surveillance, with the introduction of better immunosuppressive drugs, it moved up to the green line. And contemporary survival is that faint yellow line at the top. And what I've just put on here are recent one-year survival rates after heart transplantation. We've come from 
40% over one year with, with, with a really international effort of everyone. It's a, it's a team sport transplant. There's not enough patients for one place to say they, they've, they've made the discoveries. But we've come from a survival of 40% to over the last few years, we expect a 95 plus percent survival rate for the first year after transplant. So it's been fairly remarkable. Now, I wanted to ask you about there's LVATs, which are um, mechanical devices that kind of carry somebody along before transplantation. Tell us about that, because that must also impact the survival. Yeah, yeah. Um, LVAD, which is an acronym for a left ventricular assist device, um, is a pump. And LVADs started their development about the same time they did the first heart transplant. In fact, they're referenced in the book. Um, Dr. Kantrowitz was very interested in this. It, it's, it's basically a pump that draws blood out of your heart and pumps it back into the aorta and creates a parallel circulation. What's happened um, since about 2008 is they've become miniaturized. Uh, they've gone from these big, clunky, pulsatile devices that broke down to smaller, and even now smaller in the last few year pumps. Um, they're durable. Uh, they've, they're successfully bridging patients who would otherwise have died on the heart transplant list for years so they can make it to a heart transplant. They are being used for patients who are not transplant candidates because of other medical problems so they can live on the device as their definitive therapy for heart failure. One of the, um, I think, more amazing things is there are hundreds of patients now in our community. You, you probably walk by them in the mall, you probably don't realize that they're walking around supported with these devices. We have patients now that have been on this pump who would have otherwise, who would have otherwise died uh, that are approaching their eight and nine year anniversaries. So, it's becoming an effective alternative for patients who are not candidates for transplant <coughs> and a, a great bridge. And I, I don't want to talk too much about them because Dr. Tang has brought some show and tell and, and has, has some conversation to share too. Great. So. You know, when you think about this, our gathering this evening and the book is entitled Every Second Counts, we're now talking every year counts. Oh, yeah. Every month counts. So an extension of life before you even get surgery, remarkable. Those figures are absolutely remarkable. Uh, so come a very long way. Dr. Tang, let me ask you about then the issue of, of, of organ donors. How did they come about and, and, and kind of what are the mechanics of that and the availability of that today? Yeah, so absolutely. So Dr. Kasarajan mentioned, um, you know, from those early beginnings with Dr. Lauer and Dr. Shumway, the, um, the, and the introduction you know, of um, better uh, anti-rejection medications, there was a rapid, relatively rapid increase in the number of transplants being performed. Um, but that number of about 5,000 heart transplants per year in the country, I mean in the world, and in the U.S. it works out to about 2,500 uh, per year, has been relatively flat for the last couple of decades. There's maybe been a little bit of a recent increase in the last couple of years possibly related to the opioid epidemic. Uh, but for the most part, that number has been relatively flat. And it's interesting how it comes full circle in terms of 
the availabilities, um, the sort of disparity between the organs that are needed, that 25, 3,000 uh, potential heart transplants per year, and the potential need, which could easily be tenfold higher. Um, when you look at the statistics that, that, uh, that's kept by, uh, by UNOS, the, the main organization that, that governs transplants in the country, about 10%, uh, a little bit less than 10% of the folks uh, that are on a heart transplant list that are waiting uh, will pass away before they get a heart transplant. Um, and so there's, there's definitely this disparity in need. And there's a lot of current emphasis in you know, how can we improve um, the treatments. So these LVADs, these devices, um, certainly provide an off-the-shelf mechanical uh, solution that can at least temporize the patient, support the patient. Uh, but they have their own challenges. Uh, it, it is not a, a comfortable life living with, with the, the machine by any stretch. And if you were to ask any patient, you know, if given the options between having a, a mechanical pump uh, versus a transplanted heart, the vast majority uh, would, would, would prefer to have a heart if it was available. The, um, so some of the uh, potential things that are uh, in this sort of modern era of trying to improve this access to organs so, uh, you know, these campaigns to increase, uh, you know, just being a donor, uh, to be aware of those, um, they've had some modest success and they're, they're uh, definitely uh, helpful. Uh, but if you recall from that earlier video with Dr. Lauer and, and taking that heart out um, and actually trying to work and resuscitate it um, to see, so there's lots of uh, hearts that get discarded because we're not sure that they're usable. We currently only take the best hearts uh, that we can find uh, for organs, and in particular, we only make use of those folks who have that brain death that Dr. Kasarajan was talking about. Um, in the rest of the transplant world, for kidneys, livers, and so forth, um, there is this notion of donation after cardiac death. Um, the notion that in somebody who is unfortunately just severely uh, injured, but, certain, but the majority of their organs are okay, um, that they would withdraw care, <clears throat> declare death based off of the fact that the heart stops, and then you still make use of those other organs uh, for, you know, to, to save other uh, recipients. But because we've let that heart die, so to speak, um, we're very nervous about being able to use that. And having a mini ICU where you can take the organ out and, uh, and resuscitate it, assess it, test it to see if it's uh, usable um, is really uh, a potential game changer in terms of uh, organ availability. And there's been some early pilot trials in uh, both the uh, in the UK and Australia that have suggested uh, it could easily increase the number of organs available by a third to a half. Um, the, um, some of the other big things that um, uh, you may have heard of also in the news is, is the ability to edit genes and uh, really to affect uh, uh, the, the genome. And um, one of the uh, sort of you know, uh, uh, dreams of transplant has been the ability to essentially manufacture a living organ uh, that you can then put into a recipient that doesn't require another person. So there are multiple strategies to try to achieve this. Uh, one way is to try to grow it in an animal, um, and uh, in particular an animal of a similar size, such as a pig or what's called xenotransplantation. The ch there's significant challenges though when you talk about, you know, we, we, we already have work to, to uh, adjust the immune system to allow it to accept an organ from a different person, you start talking about a different species is, is a, another magnitude of challenge. And 
these sort of powerful tools to edit the, the, the genome and so forth actually make it um, within the realm of possibility when it used to really just be science fiction. And it was a couple of months ago in a, in a, in a, a German study um, that they were able to actually have uh, pass a 90-day mark of where they transplanted a pig's heart into uh, baboons. And actually, they, they passed that 90-day mark and, and, are, and appear to be uh, doing quite well to the degree that the notion in the near future of, of human trials of xenotransplantation are quite uh, reasonable. Um, the other big uh, sort of uh, uh, um, potential way of manufacturing this uh, organ, a living organ to, to use for somebody in need, is the whole notion of stem cells. Use the person's own cells to grow that heart. And how you could um, do so, we're currently in the midst of some uh, early trials where we use it to just repair the heart. You know, somebody has a bad heart attack, a bad area of injury, potentially uh, harvest their stem cells, inject it into that area to try to recover that area of injury. Uh, but, you know, thinking way down the road in terms of the future, the notion of building a heart, printing a 3D scaffold of the heart, and fusing that with living stem cells from that patient that doesn't need any anti-rejection medications uh, is, is, uh, is certainly uh, tantalizing. And that's called 3D printing, isn't it? Yeah. Right? yeah. Amazing. Uh, we're going to have an interlude. You're going to tell us another story about Dr. Lauer. So we talk about Dr. Lauer and many of these giants in, in what they've done in the work. But I want to tell you a human story about Dr. Lauer. So I, my wife and I moved to Richmond along with our children in 2000. And we had just moved into the house. And we were kind of putting things around, and the phone rings. So my wife goes and picks up the phone, <clears throat> and she answers it. Then she turns to me and said, you know, like, there is a Dr. Lauer on the phone. <laughs> he wants to talk to you. Then she, she's a physician, so she knows the story. So she said, is it the Dr. Lauer? I said, <laughs> I, said I don't know, you know? <laughs> so I picked up the phone, and there's Dr. Lauer welcoming me to Richmond. And I didn't know how, I, I'm still to this day, and I've talked to him many times, I didn't know how he actually found out that I was coming. Because I was hired to rebuild the heart transplant program. Uh, and you know, he was congratulating me being here. So that's the human side. And at that time, he actually had returned back to Richmond from Montana and was working in a free clinic, uh, helping uh, people who couldn't afford care. So that's the human side of a great man. Great so man. that's very important. Wow, he had a big heart, too. Mm -hmm. wow. Fantastic. Dan, tell us about uh, Total Artificial Heart and what's happening in that area. Yeah, so the, the Poly Heart Center, VCU, has a, has a particular um, uh, you know, uh, national, worldwide uh, recognition for its expertise in the use of the artificial heart. Um, the artificial heart, so the vast majority of folks with heart failure uh, need help for the primary pumping chamber, that left ventricle. So those left ventricular assist devices, those LVADs that Dr. Shaw was talking about, are in general the primary thing that they need in order to have a, a, a functioning uh, circulatory system. But there are some folks who it, it is not in and of itself enough. And they, in fact, do need support for both sides for, for a variety of reasons. And a complete mechanical replacement of the entire heart um, is sometimes their, their only option. And it is, it is a, a, a unique field um, in terms of sort of just the, how the, the person interacts with having a, a completely mechanical uh, heart. 
I'm, I'm sure many in the audience uh, can, can recall, you know, the, the uh, Dr. Barney Clark in Utah uh, undergoing that artificial heart um, in, in the mid-80s. And the technology for the artificial heart has, has advanced some, but, uh, um, but it, it still has quite a ways uh, to go. Um, so a lot of the challenges that Dr. Clark faced back in the uh, 80s uh, with the artificial heart and, and sort of the interaction of the person uh, with the, the things had to do with a lot of the trauma it did to the blood um, and uh, to the other organs uh, by, by extension. And um, the hope it would be that um, would be to make something more biocompatible. And we're in the early phases of, uh, of, of, of starting a trial with a new uh, artificial heart um, that is more biocompatible. It's lined with, uh, with, uh, with, with tissue as opposed to plastic. It's got uh, bioprosthetic uh, valves as opposed to these mechanical valves. And the uh, early uh, studies seem to suggest that it, it is much less traumatic uh, to the blood uh, than otherwise. Um, some of the, the other big challenges with these pumps is, is they're big pumps. Um, the, the current pump that we use predominantly today um, is only slightly smaller than the pump that was used in uh, Dr. Clark in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And that means that by, by, by default, that in general, the pump is really only suitable for the average adult male. Um, it is not suitable for children, mm -hmm. uh, not suitable for a lot of women. Um, and, uh, and so the need to uh, get that pump uh, to a smaller size uh, to fit uh, more body types is uh, important. And uh, we've uh, recently started a trial making use of a smaller version of the pump uh, to, uh, uh, to expand the access. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you very much. I want to switch gears a little bit and broaden the conversation because we've been talking about heart and heart transplant, but of course there are other organs in the body. Tell us about the bigger picture of solid organ transplant, some of the challenges today, Marlon. Well, thank you, Peter. I, I think uh, you know we're primarily here to celebrate uh, heart transplants, but it's important to remember at, at MCV that that both David Hume and H.M. Lee really created a, a much larger world uh, than than heart transplant, uh, which is really significant. So, for example, just here at uh, at MCV this past year, we blew past uh, 5,000 solid organ transplants over a 60-year history, which is uh, really a remarkable accomplishment, and I think a, a tribute to the legacy that, uh, uh, that, uh, that these men and the teams that they created uh, really, really brought to us. So uh, now commonly transplanted are livers and kidneys and pancreas. Uh, cell transplants for diabetes is on the horizon. Uh, hand transplants, face transplants, lung transplants. So there's, there's really a, uh, an entire world and a, a veritable cornucopia, if you will. I'm not sure if that's a, the right analogy, but uh, to, uh, to describe the, the world of transplantation. Uh, and it's, and it's uh, an incredibly exciting field to be in because it, it touches so many aspects uh, of, of medicine. Tell me, uh, you mentioned diabetes yep. and insulin, uh, yep. insulin uh, cells, islet cells. Can you tell us some about that? Yeah, I can. So, um, so one of the, I think, the emerging technologies in, in transplantation that was really born out of uh, organ transplant, in this case of, of pancreas transplant, is to be able to transplant not, not just the entire organ, but specific cells that, are, that do the work that you need to do. So in this case, it's a schematic of the islet cell, the cell in the 
human pancreas that makes insulin and glucagon and help us keep our blood sugars within the desired range. So just as we're moving to, to cell-based therapies for, for uh, heart failure and heart transplants, we're also moving to cell-based therapies for, for the treatment of diabetes or in some cases of, uh, of pancreatitis. If you could advance the slide. So the, in, a, in the cell transplant for, for islet cells, all those cells get, get placed in the liver. This is a, a, an x-ray, a radiograph of uh, cells going into the <coughs> liver, uh, in this case from an organ donor, and then the recipient is a type 1 diabetic, a juvenile diabetic. Uh, and there's really two models of cell transplantation for islet cells. Uh, one is allogenic transplant, so where the organ donor is a, is a, a healthy person who's died and, and donated their pancreas just, just as they would donate a kidney or a heart for transplant. Uh, but in, instead of transplanting the entire pancreas, we, uh, we have a very specialized team, uh, uh, for example, like the team that we have uh, uh, at MCV that can extract the, uh, the islet cells from the pancreas and then we transplant them uh, into the recipient where they uh, become lodged in the liver and start to produce insulin and glucagon and, and do the work uh, that, they were, that they were destined to do and, if you will, restore the ability to, uh, to control blood sugars in, in, in a juvenile diabetic who's, who's lost it. And then we, we uh, can spin that technology to treat patients who um, really don't have organ, uh, organ uh, failure in need of transplant, but in, in this instance, pancreatitis. Uh, but so that they don't have diabetes as a result, we can take the patient's own cells and give, the, give it back to them again uh, in the liver. So a, a true spin-off of the technology that, uh, that the transplant world has brought uh, and that we could trace back to 60 years ago when, when David Hume and subsequently H.M. Lee and Dick Lauer and many other people uh, really brought that, uh, brought that technology to, to fruition. So, so this could revolutionize diabetes treatment, which diabetes is a very common condition and, of course, particularly debilitating in juvenile diabetes. Yeah, it really could. In the United States, allergenic uh, islet transplants, uh, so an organ donor to a type 1 diabetic, a juvenile diabetic, is still considered experimental. It's therapeutic in, in uh, many other countries, and uh, as is sometimes the case, the, the um, American regulatory system in medicine perhaps moves a little slower than, uh, than in other places. Uh, certainly slower than in South Africa, we learned. But um, <laughs> is that out loud? But uh, but 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 the point is that there's a you know there's a million type one diabetics, many of whom are are very young people, children, uh, uh, teenagers, young adults who could who could benefit from cell transplants, a minimally invasive way to restore their ability to control their own blood sugar without without having to have uh, insulin shots and and without the ravages that diabetes can come. So, so there's a lot of promise there, and, it, and it's exciting that, that MCV is, is right in the middle of that. So, so think back to 1968 and the optimism and the sense of opportunity, and now we're talking about extraordinarily heart interventions as well as extraordinary interventions for diabetes. The optimism that that provides is extraordinary. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing, and, and I could go on and on, and Peter cut me off when it's time, but for it's example... <laughs> no, please do Well, one last vignette, if you will. So um, we think of transplantation, we don't always think of cancer as a, uh, as a, um, a companion uh, disease necessarily, uh, but transplant, in the case of liver transplantation, uh, that really is a technology that has revolutionized the approach to the treatment of liver cancer, because the ability to remove the entire liver and put a new one in as a treatment for 
for liver cancer has really helped to, to propel uh, research in the field and helped to, uh, to develop new ways <coughs> short of transplantation to treat liver cancers very effectively, knowing that you, that you always had that possibility of, of taking out the, the entire liver and, and putting a new one in, so a, a, a backstop, if you will. And, and liver cancer is a devastating disease that, that has uh, you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people uh, affected worldwide, particularly in Asia. So another area where transplantation has grown well beyond the, the, the immediacy of, of replacing one organ for another. Terrific. Thank you. Uh, we're going to open it up for questions shortly. So if you have questions, please, uh, we'll have microphones in a second. But before we do that, we'd like to ask each of our four experts to kind of peer into the future. Uh, they've told us about what's very exciting at present, what's coming up in the next three to five years. But let's push you a little further and be both speculative and futuristic uh, as to what's happening in the, in, in the future. So Marlon, what's in your area, you think? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in the very near future, specifically at MCV, I think you'll, you'll, uh, you'll hear and read about uh, hand transplantation, which I think is coming in the next, if not 12 months, next 24 months. And that's particularly important to our, our uh, relationship with, uh, with uh, the Richmond VA, where there's, uh, where there's a, a need for that. Uh, uh, you'll uh, uh, hear and read about our, our, our return to lung transplantation, also a, also a very important need. More broadly speaking, I think the, the future absolutely includes uh, trying to understand how to, how to uh, close the gap between supply and demand in transplantation that, that Dan Tang spoke about. So you'll see work in, in continuing work in, in the use of animal organs uh, for transplant and gene modification and gene therapy is going to be really very critical to that. And, you, and you'll see continued efforts in cellular transplants, not just islet cells, but, but for hearts and, and liver cells as well. Okay, Vic, speculate. <clears throat> so be, very immediately, um, the most important thing that's gonna be happening at uh, VCU in the campus is the original labs that Dr. Lauer and many of his colleagues, H.M. Lee, and Dr. Hume spent time developing these techniques are going to get completely renovated. So we're going to do a complete renovation of the labs. Uh, thanks to a grateful gift by David and Christine Cardrell, uh, we're going to be able to renovate those labs and use them as a state-of-the-art art organ reanimation facility. And that's what we want to create. We want to create uh, a space where we can study organ reanimation and understand uh, how we can solve the problem with organ shortage uh, issues with uh, islet cell transplantation, xenotransplantation. We really need to study it in the lab at the basic bench uh, and before we take it to humans. So that was the strength of Dr. Hume. He really was able to create the synergy between what happened in the lab, the discovery, and take it to the bench, back to the bedside. And that's what we want to do again. And I think that's going to be the most exciting thing, I think, for the next few years for us. Great. Thank you. Kia? I think in, in the next two to four years, you'll start seeing patients being implanted with mechanical pumps that are about the size of your thumb. And when these, when these are implanted, it's, it's going to move closer and closer to a shorter stay surgery, elective conversations, implanting people earlier when they're moderately symptomatic. And that's what we're going to kind of see as these pumps evolve and the complications decrease and their ease of insertion increase. So in the next two years, we'll probably have a clinical trial where we're putting in a pump about this small. Wow. 
So stay alive. Yeah. That's it. Do it. Hold on, hold on. Give me two years. Dan? Uh, and then it reminds me, I forgot, uh, we did, um, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that there are so many nurses here from the original uh, time with Dr. Lauer, but we also have some of our nurses from our current program here as well, too, and they help, uh, were very kind enough to bring uh, a lot of the models that we use when we, when we teach patients of the artificial heart, as well as some of these LVADs, if you guys would like to, to take a look at, at uh, some of, from the old to some of the even the, the most modern uh, pumps that we have today. Um, in terms of, you know, what does the future bring? I think um, there's a, a very famous quote from Dr. Shumway uh, about the notion that xenotransplantation is the future of heart transplants and always will be. Or this notion of using animal organs to trans uh, as a transplant is, is just that difficult of a far-fetched science fiction. And I think the, the funny thing is, is now it, you, know, the, you can actually see the, the potential for reality. And then even the things that Dr. Shumway at that time didn't even imagine, the notion of even using a printer to print that heart and infuse it with their own cells, I think is you know, that 20-year 20, 20 down, the, down the road uh, notion. Great, great, thank you. Um, you want to clap? That's good. Yeah, that's good. Right. <laughs> clap, that's good. Excellent. We're open for questions now. And so there's a roving mic here. And on the other side. And on the other side, coming to that very young gentleman over there with the gray hair. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, my name's Joe Dagnan. Uh, yes, I was sir. there. I scrubbed on that first team. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and, and I just want to clarify one thing. Um, while we were preparing uh, the uh, recipient, a uh, third-year surgical resident by the name of David Sewell was in the next room uh, harvesting the heart from, uh, from Mr. Tucker, and David Sewell never gets any credit for anything. <laughs> uh, the second thing I, I wanted to just point out that the, the panel really uh, makes a, a strong case for, and that is animal research. Mm -hmm. When you read the newspaper or around in our, our culture today, animal research is, um, takes a bad rap. And, and it, without animal research, we wouldn't be discussing the things we're talking about now. Thank you. Thank you for both of those comments. We have somebody over here, yes, to the far end. So, so David Sewell was named in the, um, in the, in the manslaughter case, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they found him. <laughs> yeah, it was his fault. Can someone comment on who is paying for this research and what the sources of funding are today and for our current research for in the future? Sure. Fig, will you take that? Right, so there are many sources for funding. The, the most important source for funding in the United States today is the National Institutes of Health. And they contribute the bulk of uh, money that supports a vast amount of research and academics. In addition, the veterans health system is a very important source for funding. So currently one of our heart surgeons, Dr. Uh, Carter, is funded by the uh, veterans health system to look at the use of donor hearts after cardiac arrest. Uh, the American Heart Association, so the many, many organizations, Department of Defense, lots of different opportunities. And within our own health system, for example, our dean 
will often give us some grants to start, start up some uh, research. So, so, so there's lots of different opportunities to, to uh, but it is a challenge. Funding for research is a challenge. And one of the sources for funding for research that is very innovative, that even the National Institutes of Health and other places that require data to prove that research is philanthropy. So the contribution of individuals um, to, for example, the MCV Foundation, uh, is, that's very, very critically important for really groundbreaking innovative research. You get someone started. Right. So you can apply for a federal grant, but you've got to have a competitive grant application right. and they look and there's a section and they ask what have you what tests have you done what's your pilot data and of course that's hard to come by and so funding either internal funding like the kind of funding we do or external funding by support is very very helpful and that's also what foundations do they often seed uh, pilot money that then collects pilot data that then allows the kind of peer review that gets federal funding. So it's a whole sequence. Charlie. What about quality of life post-surgery? Is there ways of, are there ways of measuring quality, particularly relating to depression and activity? Yeah, great question. Marlon, do you yeah, want to I'll, take Yeah, I'll take that. So that's uh, the question that you may not have heard of. The question is about quality of life after uh, an organ transplant after uh, after major surgery, and that's that's an area of uh, of strong interest. And in, in, in transplantation, that's been studied very well across all organs, uh, actually. And as you might expect, uh, uh, being told that you're going to die without a, a major operation like an organ transplant, and then and then surviving that uh, is a is a mental stressor. So there's there's no question that um, that attention is paid to it. There's, there's some um, uh, well-validated uh, uh, tests of quality of life uh, that, have, that have shown across the board uh, for all transplants, heart, uh, lung, kidney, liver, and so on, uh, a marked improvement in the quality of life uh, after transplant with, uh, with uh, very often return to baseline or near return to baseline. And quality of life is, is defined by different people differently, um, but, but what's universal is that the quality of life improves significantly after transplant. So I have a small story about that. So when Dr. Hume started the transplant program, he realized that you know, we needed to study quality of life and behavior. So actually, the Department of Psychiatry was founded because Dr. Hume yeah. recruited Joel Silverman into, into, the, the, department of, into the Department of Surgery. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Remarkable. With the multitude, with a multitude of additional d devices, both mechanical and living, do you require individually uh, uh, different, different kinds of anti-rejection drugs, or does one set uh, stop the rejection for all of these devices? Here, do you want to take Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so when you have a mechanical device in and not a heart transplant, the good thing is the body can't reject it. So you don't have to be on immunosuppression. But what mechanical devices can do, especially the older generation ones, is they can rev up your immune system a little bit so that after transplant, you may need additional immunosuppression. That was true in earlier generations, but seems to be less true now, but we're always on a close lookout for that. There was a question here in the front. More statement. Um, I received a kidney transplant in 96 at Deaconess Hospital wow. and then here at MCV 10 years ago. 
Um, so the quality of life has been outstanding, but the main thing I really wanted to say is to thank you all, particularly both the clinical skills and the research, because I really would not be standing here today were it not for what you've described, as well as for the nurses and everybody else who's provided the care. And I suspect there's probably several or many of us that have received a solid organ transplant here today, and it's of great appreciation. Thank you for that. We, we have a zinger of a question from Mac McGuire. Yes, Mark. Well, no, uh, I just a little, a little bit of a, a little story. Yeah. Uh, in 1959 and 60, that winter, uh, when Dick Lamar, I think, was still at Stanford, I was in Lewis Bosher's heart lab in uh, MCV. Uh, Dick was this beautiful, optimistic adventurer for whom everything could work. I was a a skeptic, and I didn't think that the immune system could be beaten. I thought the Lord had created it to be unbeatable. So uh, that was the difference. But but one day in the lab, uh, Professor Woodrow from Edinburgh uh, looked over my shoulder and said, uh, he was here amongst this parade of people from all around the world who came to see if this was real, what was going on. And, uh, and I said to Professor Woodrow, uh, do you think transplant is really going to work? And he said he didn't know, but that he was uh, the chair of the most prestigious uh, surgical department in Europe, and that as, as such, he owed it to his, uh, his uh, occupancy of this chair to drive a Rolls Royce. And the transplant, <laughs> transplantation was the rules of surgery. And so he was going to drive transplantation. Well, uh, he did, and it's so joyful to me now. Uh, looking back on all this, to see that VCU is still driving a Rolls Royce. And also to see that, uh, to see that another Rolls Royce in Richmond is the Virginia Historical Society, uh, thanks to Charlie Bryan. Yes, sir. How long could a typical uh, heart transplant patient expect to live? Who'd like to sure. take that? So yeah, Dr. Dunn. If, if you look at the statistics, on, on average, about 50% um, of the 50% survival, so half of folks will live out to about 11 to 12 years. Um, the, and that's all comers. And, and that's also in an older population in terms of, uh, the, in, in terms of what they actually die of. Only about half will actually die of rejection. Uh, but um, the uh, but it's about uh, anywhere from in children it may be as high as 15 uh, plus years. As high as what? 15. 15 plus years. 15 plus years. Yeah. Second question: How much does it cost? Uh -huh. <laughs> what kind of insurance do you have? <laughs> question up here. Uh, yes, I was asking, I wanted to ask about research in uh, extending the viability window of organs once they have been recovered. Yeah. Um, I know that there is, uh, I've read of some research with hearts, which are normally four or five hours, I think, yeah. that can allow them to be viable for, uh, for days. Yeah, I, I think uh, we had a video up earlier about of a beating heart inside of a chamber. This is some... Yeah. Uh, 
maybe what you're alluding to and, and the data that Dan alluded to in Europe and, and the UK that was recently published is, I, th I think, you know, no one mentioned it, but what we expect to do in, in, a, in a research project, uh, a trial we're going to be part of at VCU, is using this device, and man, uh, Dan called it a mini ICU, but it's a chamber in which you actually bring the heart back to life while you're procuring it and bring it back beating to the donor. So what this, uh, what this is going to do is we're going to expect to send Dr. Tang all the way to California to procure hearts and bring them back to, bring them back to MCV. They'll be coming on drones. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> so so if, I could, if I could add to that, I, I don't know why anybody would want a heart from California, but that, that's, that's something else. Um, so the time window varies from organ to organ. So the current state right now is for kidney, the, the sort of the, the acceptable clinical limit for a kidney is about 36 hours between, between the time when it leaves the donor to when it's reperfused in the recipient. The time window for hearts is the other extreme is much shorter. It's four hours, sometimes a little bit longer. Liver's in between. So uh, we, we like the livers to get in within eight hours. We, we're grumpy if it gets to 12 hours, and we're really grumpy if it's past 12 hours. But, but devices like, like Dr. Shaw and Dr. Tang have talked about are, are really the, the future for that. The, there's currently some pumps that we use to keep, to keep kidneys going in between donor and recipient. They're, the, they're, they're cold temperature, so they're 4 degrees centigrade pumps, and, and they work well. Uh, but really the future of that, of organ reanimation, which Vig spoke about, uh, or organ resuscitation between donor and recipient, which will let us stretch that time window and let us fly four or five hours or, or longer to, to, to get a heart or a liver or, or kidneys is really warm. So normal thermics, so body temperature uh, perfusion of an organ. And, and, and you'll see that this year at, at uh, VCU for, for hearts and for livers. And, and if we come back in, in, in just a few years, that time window answer will be much longer than it is today. A quick follow-up, I'm sorry, a quick follow-up on that. Yep. Um, Oceans. So donation across across oceans, across continents, is is for all intents and purposes not practiced. Uh, from time to time, uh, particularly for thoracic organs, for hearts and lungs, not so much for livers and kidneys, uh, teams do reach into Canada uh, and vice versa. And that's particularly true for for childhood transplants, pediatric transplants, or, or for you know, folks who are really small and and, uh, and need a, a small heart or a child's heart. Uh, so there is communication and collaboration across our northern border, southern border, not so much. Uh, there's, that wall isn't there yet. But, um, uh, but conceivably, the technology could, could really uh, extend the world of, of where we can go uh, to, to get organs for, for donation and for transplantation, absolutely. So, so just one final remark and question before we ask uh, Mr. Talheimer to come out, up and close things out, and that is, you know that in addition to the quality of science and clinical care that Dr. Lauer and others instilled all that way back, they also trained a generation of doctors. And so I'd like, these are clearly gifted doctors, gifted scientists. I'd like you to tell the audience just a little bit about your training and all the years and all the practice that went into the remarkable skill set that you see here this evening. So we'd review any of you to tell us a bit about uh, what, it, what training you have committed to, to to become the kind of doctors and do the remarkable things that you do. 
Well, I'm still learning, so I'm not sure. Uh, uh, but but uh, certainly the, the formal schooling uh, past high school is, is uh, typically four years of university, four years of uh, medical school, um, uh, takes us to our mid-20s, and then five or six years of uh, surgery residency, that takes us to our early <coughs> 30s, and then uh, a couple years of, uh, in my case, of uh, transplant surgery fellowship, so it takes us to the to, uh, early to mid-30s. And that's sort of when you begin to, to, to be able to, uh, to start really practicing. But, but the learning goes on, goes on forever, and the, the, the pure joy of being at, a, at an academic institution where we train the next generation is that they teach us so much more than, than I think we teach them. And so it, it really is ongoing. And that legacy goes all the way back to Dr. Larry. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I would just add one thing to that. I mean, there's a number of folks in here who actually have had a lot in, in my own personal training. I, I, I was an intern under Dr. McGuire. I don't know if he remembers or not. <laughs> and, and I even had the, the opportunity when I was a resident to, to, to talk with Dr. Lauer a number of times because I had some interest in, 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 in hearts. And then I was even fortunate also to spend some time at, at Stanford uh, and uh, do uh, and, and study you know, transplants out there as well, too. And it's, um, you know, when I first came back as, as, uh, to VCU um, uh, to, to, you know, as, as part of the faculty, um, the very first operation I did under Dr. Kasarajan uh, was an artificial heart. And um, that's just unheard of. And I think that this notion of a third year resident uh, you know, on, a, on a historic operation going to procure the heart, th this notion of training uh, that, that is a, a fundamental part of of VCU surgery is, is just uh, um, a key thing. Thank you. Thank you for that. We're going to continue the conversation shortly, but I'd like to ask Mr. Harry Falheimer, the uh, chairman of uh, MCV Foundation, to come up and say some concluding remarks. Thank you, each of you. That was terrific. Thank you. Good evening. I've got remarks, but first question, how do we do? You know, sometimes you try it and it doesn't work, and you come back a second time and it's better. And I gotta tell you, this was terrific. Congratulations. You know, it's an honor to serve as the chair of the board of the MCV Foundation and to be here tonight, but after listening to this, not only do I feel inconsequential and insignificant, I've got the easiest job. All I have to do is say thank you and say goodbye. But to the team that conceived this event, a real special thank you for this exciting series and the amazing collaboration between the MCV Foundation and the Virginia Historical <coughs> Society. Again, Austin, you're the best. Thank you for, for this. And in abstention to Charlie Caravati, who helped me talk to Austin and convince him this was a good idea. And to Charlie Bryan, thank you. Thank you to this outstanding panel of world-renowned healthcare leaders for the amazing work that you do, for the students that you teach, and the continuation and the honor of the great legacy of transplant pioneering that walked the halls of MCV 50, 60, 70 years ago. Peter Buckley, thanks for leading the discussion. You're a natural. We're going to let you and Marlon duke it out for the comedy chair when it's over. <laughs> but thanks for all the great things you're doing as dean of the School of Medicine and what you're doing for our community. We welcome you and Leone to Richmond. You've been terrific.
to the staffs of the Virginia Historical Society and our NCV Foundation staff. This is, this is, this is no easy task. It's tireless work. This is a really, really uh, special evening. Jamie, thank you for allowing us to take over your space tonight and being our partner on this. And more importantly, Charlie, thank you for your welcome and thank you for your inspiration. Most importantly, though, thanks to you, you and the audience, you members of both organizations, our boards, our guests, our friends for being here to celebrate our past, but really to celebrate our future. The outstanding work in transplant medicine is just one very special part of the comprehensive work done on the MCV <coughs> campus at VCU Health by our doctors, by our nurses, by our technicians, our professional staff. Every day we educate students, we carry out groundbreaking research, we make new discoveries while we're providing outstanding health care to a wide range of people, many just like you, needing diagnosis and the newest and best treatments, procedures and care. And I think you all know this, as the leading safety net hospital in Central Virginia, we treat and cure so many who have nowhere else to go. The MCV Foundation is proud to serve in our role as fundraiser, investor, steward, and shepherd of funds to support VCU Health and our world-class healthcare enterprise right here in your front yard. In that role, we thank you for your past, your current, and your future support, and we encourage you to take advantage of the opportunities this amazing asset affords all of us and to continue to learn more about the great things happening every day on the MCB campus. And I have to ask in response to the question, source of funding. <laughs> Trust me, it takes a lot. We have a lot, but we need a lot more. This is our Mayo Clinic, and we need to make sure that we do everything we can to support it, build it, and grow it. And with assets like this, our future is incredibly bright. So to that end, we look forward to seeing you back here in the fall as our next program highlights the 100th anniversary of the flu pandemic and it's, again, it's implications on the future. You'll look for notifications on this in your mail and your email on both organizations' websites. And now, as the next retailer, we always have to sell something. <laughs> this book is up in the lobby. It's a great read. I read it on a flight back from California. People looked at me and said, what is that book? I've never seen it. And they said, I said, well, it's about the first heart transplant. And they go, ugh. <laughs> A page turner, it's great. And there, I think we've got quite a few copies upstairs for sale. Please, please purchase one. And to be corny and take a little uh, lead from our, our guests, every second counts. So please join us upstairs for a strolling supper. These docs and our MC campus leaders will be there. They're the special sauce. Get to know them, talk with them. They're here to answer your questions and get to be with you and continue the discussion. I think tonight's been terrific. It's been terrific because of what you do and what we've been able to share, but it's been great to have a crowd like this to share it, and we'll see you back here again. Thank you all, and good night.